Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Donna Fishson, and today I have the privilege of speaking with Gohar Hamoyunpour about her beautiful book, uh, Doing Psychoanalysis in Tehran. It was published by MIT Press in 2012, and uh, it won the 2013 Gradiva Award given by the uh, National Association for the Advancement of Psychoanalysis. Dr. Hamayunpour is a practicing psychoanalyst in Tehran. She trains and supervises the psychoanalysts of the Freudian Group of Tehran and is a lecturer of psychoanalysis at Shahid Besheti University, Tehran. She earned her doctoral degree in 2006 from the Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis, where the orientation uh, is, is modern psychoanalytic. Um, after graduating, she returned to her native Iran. Um, so in addition to uh, doing psychoanalysis in Tehran, she has published articles in the International Journal of Psychoanalysis, the Canadian Journal of Psychoanalysis, and the Freud Museum Journal. Gohar, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. It's Hi, lovely so, to be here <laughs> somehow. Oh, it's great to have you. Um, actually, ab- about a month ago, Gohar spent two weeks at, at Duke University, where I currently um, hold a postdoc in women's studies, and she gave three like fantastic, really just um, enchanting lectures, on uh, one on psychoanalysis and the veil, another about her book, and a third on geographies of psychoanalysis, uh, which is an IPA research group um, founded by mm-hmm. Lorena Preta. Uh, and, and, and as I understand it, it, it promotes uh, study related to the development of psychoanalysis in places um, where it's currently not widespread and not really institutionalized. Uh, and the project aims to investigate how psychoanalysis exerts cultural influence, but also the ways contact with various cultures and religions changes um, both the theory and practice of psychoanalysis. So it's like a two-way street. So I, I want mm-hmm. today to focus mm-hmm. on the book. Is that, is that right? Did I <laughs> summarize that? Yes. Um, yes. Okay. It's a project that, as you said, was founded by uh, the passion and intellectual force of Lorena Preta. And uh, it's, uh, it's really been a privilege for me to be part of that because it's been one of the most fascinating projects. And I think what I particularly like about the project of Geographies of Psychoanalysis is that it stays away from a cultural relativist point, point of view, which I think a lot of times has been associated with cultural studies or anything one does with culture. <laughs> Boy, okay, I want to I ask you more about that, and um, I hope we'll have a little bit of time. I, I mean, I want to focus on the book today, but if we, if, we, yeah. if we have time, I definitely, or if the opportunity arises, you know, in the course of our discussion, yes. I, I hope we... Um, we cut. We talk more about it. So yes, yeah. Yes, and I also have to say about being at Duke that was it was one of the most delightful experiences oh. I've had in a in a long time. I really enjoyed being there with all of you and 
It was a, a really an irresistible experience. Oh, for us as well. <laughs> We're still talking about it. Thank you so much. Um, but uh, okay, so so about the first about the book, um, I wanted to say something mm-hmm. about the structure. Uh, it has a really interesting structure. At least for me, it was it was great. Um, the first mm-hmm. there's like a first longer section, which is which is sort of a memoir, mm-hmm. one could say, or I mean, you can characterize mm-hmm. it too. It's a or a chain of, a chain of associations, even. Mm-hmm. And then the second mm-hmm. shorter part is a series of clinical vignettes. And, um, and then mm-hmm. both parts are about really your clinical practice uh, in Tehran. And there's also a lovely forward by Abbas Kiristami, who's, you know, famous, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. we know, our audience might know, the famous Iranian filmmaker. So, um, so please, please tell us about the genesis. Let's just begin by talking about the genesis of the book, uh, how, it, you know, how you got the idea for the book, maybe. And, and perhaps you can say something about the... Um, uh, the, the hybridized uh, uh, generic form of it. You know, and it's interesting because a lot of people <laughs> ask this question because mm-hmm. of the specific form the book has, which I think is uh, um, in a way uh, unique. And um, I, for me, it's, you know, and this has, uh, I write because I must. <laughs> so, <laughs> which, has all, which, which has also been a handicap. I have to say, mm. sorry, it's not that, um, you know, I can be one of those people that I admire a lot of times that can say, I will write three hours a day today. I can never write like that. And as I said, that has not been the, you know, the best way to produce a lot. Mm. But therefore, when I write, it's to work through something. It comes out of a place internally that it's a necessity. And I think that gets um, translated into the format of the book, which, as I say in the book, it takes the form of an analytic session. Mm -hmm. Or as I say, that is a note to myself. So I... Is the form, is the art of the novel. And, um, you know... Chris Deva mentions this, and I mention in the book that in an, in it's in writing a novel that one comes closest to facing oneself. <laughs> and um, uh, you know, I think when one writes scientific papers, as we all have, and we all have written doctorate dissertations, and not to take away from the importance of such projects, of course, but I think it ha- because I think those are necessary. But I think there's something else that happens when you write a novel, or, right. or you know, or you write in the way that I write, which that you know that I have written this book. So, in a sense, for me, it comes from a place to work through something, and um, it takes the form of an analytic session. Hmm. Hmm. Is that is that part of why um, you chose uh, Kiristami to write the foreword? Or I mean, what is the meaning? What meaning does he give for you or to your book? And because you, obviously you could have chosen an analyst or or, or somebody, um, I don't know, just somebody different. Is it is it because you wanted to stress the creative aspects of of this book? Yes, absolutely. I think that. A lot of times, I think I mentioned this when I was at Duke, that a lot of times I find 
that non-analysts do more interesting things with psychoanalytic <laughs> theories than, than analysts do. <laughs> that, and that, that for me has always been a space that I like to play in, you know, to, which is a space that, um, again, not to take away from the importance of a lot of analytic work that has been done by brilliant psychoanalysts. But for me, it becomes a space to play when I play with literature, when I play with cinema, when I play with um, philosophy, um, I, you know, it becomes this sort of um, playground. And I think Kiarostami, that I, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of his cinema. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, so, you know, all of these things put together, it was a privilege for me when he read the book and he was willing to do the foreword. Um, it was important for me for a non-analyst to write the foreword. I think, um, there is a message in it that's very close to my heart. Mm. Yeah, it was it was a beautiful fort. You know what else was beautiful that the cover so or is beautiful, I should say, and people who purchase yeah. the book um, will see that. So when I, I first saw this book, actually, at my uh, local bookstore in New York about about six months before before I met you mm-hmm. and um, I yeah. was immediately drawn to it and I was I was thumbing through it and and mm-hmm. uh the salesperson come, came up to me and said it's a great book you should you know because it's unusual for him <laughs> but it's a, my local bookstore yeah. right it's like a uh, anyway so on the cover i just wanted to talk a little bit about the cover it's a striking photograph of your um very modern office i don't know how else to put it yeah it's like a bookshelf prominently featured it's, it's a huge bookshelf <laughs> and this like sleek leather couch also prominently featured yeah. <laughs> which i really like it looks very inviting couch and then beyond it uh or behind it there there's a through through a large window we see Tehran um, yeah or a part of it that and it's interesting because it's a to my eye and I don't I don't know Tehran at all but it looks like not the central part uh but maybe maybe something is under construction sort of in the background too because there's there's a mountain but there's also buildings and then um there's it looks like there's a crane uh but I, I could be completely making that up mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. anyway mm-hmm. i um i was i i i wanted you to talk a little bit about the cover and why you chose that particular mm-hmm. photograph mm-hmm. if you can well that that's a that's a photo of my office you know it's mm-hmm. it's the it's the real deal so, <laughs> and so, so so i thought that and you know i think mit press produces the most beautiful books i mean I think, it, again, it's been a privilege to, you know, to have them as my editor. And mm. I always loved the way they produce these books. I think when we talk about the body of literature, yes. in their case, we're really talking about the body of the <laughs> book. So, yeah. so, you know, I loved getting these MIT press books before I, they, they published my book and, you know, to just uh, uh, look at that. And, you know, I, I think um, the, my publisher decided to produce, you know, it's a small book and he decided to also produce it in a format that's, that is small, which mm-hmm. I think um, it's, um, I think it really conveys the message of the book. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, the, the, the image is the image of my office. You mentioned that it's modern, and it's and it. I think that's done purposefully in a sense, because mm. I, um, as I talk about in the book, I try to stay away from this um, Orientalist ideas of what it's like to do psychoanalysis in Iran. So I think it's important for me to have this very modern office, while um, you know it's clearly um, when you see, as you mentioned through the window, a very um, typical image of Tehran. I see. Uh huh. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it, you're right, and and that I think the size. It, it, so the book is object, right? It's a small book, and then you see, and it's mm-hmm. dominated. The cover is dominated by this picture of your office, and it's it's very inviting. It's it's like a come inside mm-hmm. my office, and I'll tell you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's an invitation to intimacy. Um, it's very nice. Yeah. So. Um, Actually, you mentioned orientalizing images, and uh, in mm-hmm. your in your preface to uh, to the uh, you say that um, audiences had a fascinated you call it a fascinated rejection. Is that from Kristeva? Perhaps I forgot. Yes, yes. Yeah. That, that I, I am borrowing her term. Yeah, yeah. I, I love it. But uh, so that that initially, um, I don't love the reaction, but I I understand this reaction. Um, mm-hmm. That they, audiences mm-hmm. had a fascinated. Uh, they were. They were re- rejecting it, but in a fascinated way. <laughs> they expected something, in other words, from mm-hmm. the book, um, that it wasn't giving mm-hmm. them. And it, it seems like what you're saying is, um, uh, like the mm-hmm. publishers, journalists, colleagues, whoever, they searched in the book uh, for the sort of, a, uh, mm-hmm. for lack of a, I mean, exotic Iranian subject or something, mm-hmm. uh, or mm-hmm. the, the trauma of the Eastern other. Um, and they were they were sorely disappointed because. Um, mm-hmm. uh, because it seems like the book really resists gratifying this, you know, resists this this project of mm-hmm. like tearing off the veil and revealing the other's otherness, you know, and and you state mm-hmm. very plainly that you know you say pain is pain and human beings are the same everywhere and mm-hmm. and, and, and mm-hmm. you know the other's strangeness is located in oneself and and yet and yet um I guess my question like how does one write about doing psychoanalysis in Tehran without relying on, on cultural mm. difference, you know, to some degree mm-hmm. to articulate mm-hmm. that experience, right? So I, I, I guess mm-hmm. I, I, I was hoping you would talk um, mm-hmm. about that uh, because a cultural difference is, is addressed in the book and, um, and and it's done primarily, well, it's done, yes, I would say even primarily through or, or to some degree through Ms. N, who is this analysand that you referenced a lot, mm-hmm. And sometimes I think mm-hmm. your voice and her voice um, seem to almost merge, um, where mm-hmm. I feel like she, mm-hmm. I suspected at times that she was ventriloquizing you or that she was functioned mm-hmm. in this way. Uh, but this could be my, my fantasy about it. But um, yeah, please, please uh, comment on, mm-hmm. on this problem of, you know, cultural difference versus universalist sort of, um, um, I don't know, project. You, you talk about mm-hmm for example, Oedipus, the Oedipus complex, and how you believe in mm, its universality. Mm. Well, let me go back to the beginning of your question, because mm-hmm. you talk about this um, fascinated rejection that I'm using, the, you know, I'm borrowing Kristeva's term. I think that in general, as a psychoanalyst, I don't believe that there's ever a fascination that is not accompanied by a rejection or, or vice versa. <laughs> I think that, the, you know, fascination is in the territory of rejection and and vice versa. And, you know, this, you know, you smoothly go into this idea of Orientalism that is, you know, that is an idea that's very close to my heart. But I go beyond Edward Said, and I say that he couldn't even envision the Orientalism that we're dealing with today. And I call it a hyper-Orientalism. Wow. This is also where Kiaros, you know, another reason that I think Kiarostami um, was willing to write the foreword because we agree on this, um, you know, worldview that pain is pain everywhere. And that, um, you know, in this sort of, for lack of better word, for the just universal human condition, that we all die, that we all get old, that we all um, lose the people we love, that we all have to deal with separation, mm-hmm. and, 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 as we know. 
that our bodies fail us. And I mean, I don't want to be particularly pessimistic. It's evening for me, but I know it's morning for you. So I want to take it easy. But um, so, 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 I think, um, so I think that, you know, but also I think what I would like to add to um, Edward Said and this idea of Orientalism or what I have called hyper-Orientalism, which is that I like to bring this time the responsibility of the Orientals in. I'm a psychoanalyst. For me, subjectivity is intersubjectivity. Mm-hmm. And it's always within a dialectic of desire. So, so it's not enough for me to say, let's blame the West for this Orientalism. I need to look beyond that. And I need to say that what is the Oriental doing in creating this Orientalism? Hmm. And I'm a firm believer that the, at the same time, this Oriental other is so attached to this exotic self, to this image of exoticness. And at some level, it, you know, she or he has to come face to face with our inevitable ordinariness. <laughs> and because of that, as we all know, it's not so easy to do. I think it becomes so seductive to become part of this dialectic of desire of this Western other. But we play our part. Let me, let me give you an example. I have an artist friend that mm-hmm. I always have these discussions with her. And she said to me, but I know exactly what the market wants of me. And I produce it and it sells in the West. I, I am playing in order to achieve my goals. But this is exactly where I have, you know, there's a problematic within this discourse. There is a symptomatology that she's not seeing, which is, but yes, but in the process of this, you're basically losing the originality of your art because you're becoming a, you know, you're producing what the other wants you to produce. It's, an, it's a master-slave mentality. Yes. And in a master-slave mentality, there is, there is really no space to be negotiated for creativity. But she, does, you know, she has this idea that she's doing this with subjectivity. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, becomes very dangerous because that's not the case. Mm-hmm. You have to become face-to-face with your inevitable ordinariness, that there's nothing strange or exotic about you, that there's nothing particularly um, special about your Iranianness, for example. But I would, you know, it's very important for me to go into something else you're asking, which is, well, then how do you write about doing psychoanalysis in Tehran? Mm-hmm. But I think... You know, this is again where geographies of psychoanalysis as a project becomes endearing to me, which is I, I really believe in the universality, for example, of the Oedipus complex. I really believe in the universality of human conditions. But, of course, it goes without saying that the culture becomes a significant um, sort of in a sense, these things are culturally differently elaborated. Right. So I don't like to be a cultural relativist, but I'm a firm believer that actually, first and foremost, you have to highlight the fact that we are similar as human beings in order to really be able to talk about culture. Mm-hmm. I think actually you lose culture when you become a cultural relativist. 
because it becomes redundant. But for me, actually, as I think it is in Kiarostami cinema, culture is very much highlighted. How can it not be? I think that goes without saying. I think all I like to communicate in the book or with these different positions that I take is that actually it's the other way around. We have to start from this place that we all have this unconscious, that we're terrified of, that therefore we project it into the other, that the stranger within ourselves, again to borrow Kristeva, is really the unconscious. It is our fear of the woman, is our fear of femininity, is our fear of death. And then from that place, I can talk about what it culturally means or how is the Oedipus complex culturally elaborated within the Iranian culture. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I understand so much what you're saying. Well, I think I understand. And I'm relating it, I have to admit, because I study Russia. And so um, yeah. I think Russian identity, you know, plays with this too. Or are they part of East or West? But also a kind of self-orientalization. Um, like all you have to do is look at the, um, the Ballet Russe at the turn of the 20th century in Paris and see what, mm. they, what they did to themselves. Anyway, I mean, it was it was a creative project. <laughs> there was a lot of creativity in it. But um, it's clear that this is this is the, the dynamic you were referring to is, is taking place. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. also, yeah, I like your idea uh, very much. I like this um, of taking maybe biology or or just or the unconscious is axiomatic and working from there, and then seeing how culture mm-hmm. then um, what culture does. But 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 having this kind of axiom in the in the background or or positing this real uh, to mm-hmm. use a Lacanianism perhaps. Uh, so mm-hmm. well, I. So in in okay so keeping in mind uh, maybe that mm-hmm. we're not talking about of course essences and we're not trying to participate in this kind of uh, hyper orientalization I mean you do mm-hmm. you do there is cultural difference that's um, often addressed in the book and it's 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 constituted through various kind of um, well it's constituted in various ways so one way is in discussions or through discussions of temporalities uh, this is something that interests mm-hmm. me as well of east and west mm-hmm. and, and how people so how people approach time or experience time differently for example in Tehran and Paris okay I'll just Paris I'll pick Paris mm-hmm. because it's it figures in the book um, and you quote from uh, mm-hmm. Salman Amtar's... you're 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 picking up my unconscious when you pick up Paris go ahead <laughs> okay <laughs> Maybe, yes. Maybe it's, maybe it's not in the book. I just decided yeah. Paris. Uh, you quote from yeah. uh, Salman Akhtar's uh, book, uh, Immigration and Identity, I, I believe. And it's, it's, so I just, mm-hmm. I just wanted to read this quote because I, I don't know, it was very appealing to mm-hmm. me. So, for the East, mm-hmm. relatively speaking, uh, past, present, and future merge into one another. For the West, they are discrete entities. For the East, experience mm-hmm. and time is like water collected in a pool, stagnant perhaps. For the mm-hmm. West, time is more like water flowing in a stream. And one is acutely aware that uh, what flows away, flows away forever. And I, I mean, it's, again, it sounds... There's some cliche, but there's also, you know, real truth in it. And, it, mm. and it's really about um, mm-hmm. the structures of these societies and, and the cultures that um, they create mm-hmm. these these experiences, I think, of time. And um, can you comment a little bit about that and, and how this figures in the book or how this figures in your practice, uh, if at all? Yeah, I think these ideas of time and space, um, geography, history, you know, these are all negotiated differently within different, uh, you know, socio-political, uh, socio-cultural realms. I, so I, I agree with you in that sense. I think 
what my, um, you know, the last eight years of work has shown me in Tehran is that I find that, for example, it's the past that is eroticized in, mm-hmm. in, in Iran. And I would say a bit in the East, I find from reading, you know, about the East. While I would say it is the future that is eroticized in the West, mm-hmm. um, you know, I would again say especially North America. Because right. I think, you know, I would say that we're in Iran, we're uh, one of our important philosophers, Star Yushishaygan says that we breathe in the air of regret in countries like Iran. And I think that beautifully elaborates what I want to say about this eroticization of the past in countries like Iran. Mm-hmm. That in a sense, <laughs> we, I, think, I, think, I think we, I mean, I don't know about Russia, but I think it could fit into this description, maybe. Mm-hmm. That there is this, you know, at least in the literature, in the Russian literature, I see this nostalgia. Um, right. or this sort of eroticization of the past. I think so. I would say that here we're haunted by shadows. Well, I would say the West is haunted by this um, access of images of the future, <laughs> which, again, maybe we could even, I mean, these are just hypotheses, you know, but maybe we can even go as far as saying that, therefore, there is a negotiation between um, depression in the East and anxiety in the West. Hmm. But it, you know, none of these things is well-researched or well, well thought about. It's just ideas that are um, coming up as I'm speaking with you. But I think so when we talk about temporality, this idea of past and the future, you know, these are culturally, of course, um, stuff that can we can say. This doesn't mean that I don't believe with every single patient that I work. These things doesn't become about the person's specific narrative and their intrapsychic dynamics. Right. Yes. Um, well. Yes. But I, I do like your questions very much, though. These are these are questions that I think about a lot. What hap- What do you think happens to the present? So if it's the future or the past is eroticized, yeah. uh, where, where's the place of the present? Is I was I was hoping you wouldn't ask that. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just came to me. I wasn't going to, but you know, it sort of begs the question. Yeah. Well, I think you know. I think if we think of time as this linear. Uh, you know, um, mm-hmm. linear thing. Then we get into trouble with Heidegger when he's, <laughs> you know, when he says that when we think about the present, it's just vulgar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I don't know, but I think that maybe um, it gets lost somehow. Right. It seems to certainly yeah. in the in the U.S. context. Um, I think the future mm-hmm. is eroticized and politicized very much. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, and this hyper, um, you know, this access of images. I think yes, yeah. Well, speaking of of the of the sort of um, West and anxiety that that you mentioned earlier. Um, you one of the things the, so the other difference that, that's highlighted I, I guess one could say is is the is um between uh, present day like Iranian and American subjectivities particularly well you know this is a, a pet a pet sort of um 
again, observation of mine, but you observe that Iranian and Alizans uh, continue to resemble uh, the Freudian patients, uh, the classical patients. Mm-hmm. The Uranalizans have mm-hmm. no, no trouble in Tehran, have no trouble talking about sex, for example, in fact, uh, sex dominant. And you see this in the second half of the book. It sort of dominates the sessions. Uh, they they mm-hmm. present Oedipal problems. Um, you see many hysterics, you know, while, it, while in the States, of course, mm-hmm. Uh, we hear, by mm-hmm. contrast, um, <laughs> we hear many many analysts are are all about. I mean, they're all but ready to relegate the neurotic to history. There, um, I mean, certainly mm-hmm. certainly one can dispute this. And Lacanians, for example, do not subscribe to this. And but but I've heard it said often. And and, and there's an increasing focus on uh, the, the less than Oedipal. I think it's sometimes referred to these patients as less than Oedipal. So borderlines and narcissists or um, who are seemingly filling the practices today of, of I guess, New York, New York practices. And um, I think mm. on this, actually on this very program, there was, there was an analyst who called such patients pre-analytic. Uh, I, I, I might Neurotic be, patients were or, pre-analytic? Or pre-analytic. No, not neurotic. Mm. Uh, sort of less than neurotic or, um, uh-huh. so who's just sort of, I guess, weren't quite ready for analysis. I mean, that's the implication, right? Um, so you had to sort of mm. uh, prepare them for that. Mm-hmm. Um, they they mm-hmm. couldn't just, for example, you know, go on the couch immediately and free associate, like, which, which I you state in the book that that you're um, that Iran uh, that Tehranians um, have no problems doing this, or at least in in your in your mm-hmm. practice in your clinic. So, I guess I guess my question is, um, if there is there, I mean, do you stick by this? Is there really a difference? And if there is, are, are the patients in the United States different, or is it, or is the difference located um, perhaps in the analysts and in the theory and diagnostic categories they employ? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I think you know. I think it's a socio-cultural uh, creation. You know, I think that the, you know it's the zeitgeist. You know, it's mm-hmm. the or the what the French would call the. You know, um, it's it's the spirit of our times. You know, l'air du temps. It's uh, so. I think the spirit of our times is that in in the United States, I would say in North America or in mainstream heteronormative analytic discourse. If I'm, you know, if I I love to use heteronormative yes. here, Very <laughs> <much>. <laughs> it's it's. It's um, there is an omission of sex, and I don't think that's just within the analytic discourse. And this, of course, doesn't mean that we don't hear this what um, Lacan would call an empty speech about sex. I, I think there's actually a reaction formation to this omission. So we hear this discourse that full of this talk about. Um, sex, but it's really not about the erotic or sexuality. Mm-hmm. So there's an omission of sex, I think, from mainstream heteronormative discourse in general, not only within the analytic discourse, but of course the analytic discourse is part of this, you know, it becomes part of this mainstream heteronormative discourse. How can it not be? It's not happening in a vacuum, the analytic discourse. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, we hear, you know, look at all these TV shows in North America, look at all the books, you know, whatever, you know, whatever 50 shades of gray, I forget how many shades of gray, but, <laughs> something like some, you know, <laughs> it's something like that, you know, it's like, this is, is that really about sex? Is it really a, the popularity of it? Is it about sex? I don't think so. I think it's about pornography, which, as we all know, has nothing to do with sexuality. Pornography has nothing to do with sexuality. 
So in a sense, it's not about the erotic. It's about this, this, you know, this reaction formation to this omission of sex, which I think is a general uh, problematic. And it's, uh, the, you know, the, it's, it, it's in a sense a symptomatology of the spirit of our times. It's a diagnosis criteria of our times. But so, if we want to more specifically look at a, the analytic discourse, I think there has been, you know, the same omission, as I say, it has happened. And we see within the analytic literature, every analytic journal you pick up, you know, Andre Green had this famous uh, paper, where has sex gone in psychoanalysis? <laughs> or we hear, you know, where have all the hysterics gone? Suddenly we do not have any more hysterics, or we must call them pre-analytic. I'm not sure. So I think that then when I talk about finding that, you know, I wrote a small response to Andre Green's paper mm. saying I found it in Tehran, you know, <laughs> <laughs> because right. this is where it's at, but this is where it has gone. Because I think that there is a, a reminiscence of the era of, you know, of the Oedipus Rex in Tehran, that you hear a lot of patients, and this was also a surprise to me, are more comfortably talking about, um, you know, and their Oedipal issues, their, um, you know, their, their sexuality, about, uh, you know, the, we see a lot more, his, his, you know, it's, it's very much nostalgic, I think, of Freud Vienna. <laughs> you know, right. and again, I, maybe I can give you an example because yes, yes, I was I was, I was, I was teaching, yeah, I was teaching Dora uh, in my class last week, and um, Dora, you know, is one is is yes. one of a the probably most famous patient of Freud, right. and Dora, did you know that lived, you know, Freud lived in Berkhasa nineteen. <laughs> Dora lived in Berkhasa thirty two. <laughs> it's not surprising. <laughs> Yeah, okay. Which is fascinating. Yeah. But that was l'air du temps of the spirit of that time, of psychoanalysis in its earlier years. This is not, you know, again, to go back to Paris, can one imagine such a thing in Paris nowadays between an analysant, the distance between an analysant and an analyst being symbolically between Berks Hassan 19 and 32. We can't, but in Tehran, we can. It happens all the time. Again, I'm using this as a symbolic metaphor of what I mean when I talk about that l'air du temps, the spirit of phytons, of psychoanalysis, of doing psychoanalysis in Tehran today is very much the way it was in Freud Vienna. And unlike what a lot of people has read this statement of mine, this mm -hmm. doesn't mean it's behind. Right. Again, we're not talking about time in a linear way anymore, of mm -hmm. course. But that there is this, you know, it's that psychoanalysis is booming all of this interest there is in it. There is all this desire. There is all the problematics that comes with the intro, you know, introduction of psychoanalysis and all this desire and all these various transferences. And there's very easily the possibility, literally and symbolically, of Berkhasa 19 and Berkhasa 32. Hmm. When, you, when you say, actually, that there's no, uh, that there's no uh, sex in pornography, for example, um, and when you say that there's more sexuality 
within the discourse in, in Tehran in, in the anal, an analytic discourse or in the analyzance discourse or both. Mm-hmm. Um, are you really speaking? I mean, what, so what is sex then, right? If it's not porn, it, I mean, I'm, it's a, you, you I, know, I, I really have to stay away from this topic. I'm sorry, okay. but I keep getting sorry. That's okay. Um, I was just thinking about desire, uh, yeah. how you would, that you're, ta- you're speaking something, of, you're, you're saying something about desire there. But, um, mm-hmm. okay. Well, yes, I, I'm definitely saying something about desire. <laughs> okay. Let me just give you an example and we can leave this topic. Okay, yes. uh, you, this was, I mean, you know, I talk about Kundera in the book a lot. I was going and, to ask uh, you, he's yes. A, he's, he's a master signifier for me. Yes, he and, is. you yeah. know, I... I, I, he had this critique of the American production of the movie of the unbearable lightness of being. Mm. He said that it wasn't about the erotic, but it was porno- pornographic, which is the opposite of the book. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, but we can, you know. Okay, well, well. But I'm. I okay. can happily move on to Kundera if you wish. <laughs> well, 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 Kundera in a second. I, I wanted to actually uh, speak yeah. about maybe something a little bit more innocuous, um, which is a uh, hospitality. Uh, so, so another th- yeah. sort of difference that's outlined, or or an experience that you had in your, or have, or or had when you first returned to Tehran. Certainly, you dealt with these um, feelings of dislocation and and maybe unbelonging, but also. I don't know. It seems that um, will you talk in an ambivalent sort of way, maybe about all of the hospitality and friendship and intimacy that you experience there, and how it's that you don't always experience in the West, or maybe Ms. N. This and Alizan talked about it, but you seem to assume part of this. You t- seem to take on part of her discourse a little bit here, and I don't know. I do you have maybe something to say about that, um, or maybe well, how Ms. N. Actually, yeah. I don't. I don't. Go ahead. Or how she functions also in the book, because in addition to Kundera, so Kundera is is there definitely, and he's a master signifier, <laughs> as you put it. Mm-hmm. Um, but but so is she. She's really threaded through the first half of, mm-hmm. of the or the first, you know, maybe even three quarters of the mm-hmm. book. Um, mm-hmm. And I I couldn't help but think, you know, who is she? At first you you were uh, you described that you were a little bit intimidated by her, and then she becomes. Um, someone you kind of identify with at various moments, and she's she's a bit older than you, right? But but is this clearly some kind of identification happening, or at least this is how I read mm-hmm. it? Again, you could totally dispute it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so I thought, you know, there there are these two figures basically in the book. There's this Kundra, and and there and she's there. And I thought maybe you could talk about their both of them, maybe in tandem or separately, and their function for you. I mean, so she seems to be the voice of of this, like these different sketching out, she seems to, to, to really trace these differences between East and West. Um, mm-hmm. Well, she does it in a split form. Ah, she does uh-huh. it in a, in a, you know, it's a complete split for her, you know, mm-hmm. at ta- and at times these, of course, as we know, as, when one splits, there's easily the switch can happen. You know, <laughs> the good becomes the bad and the bad becomes right. the good. But she does it. And in this sense, I think it becomes, you know, because I'm convinced that when one writes about patients, one again is trying to work through a part of oneself. And I think for, you know, her, for me, she had this uh, uh, function of, uh, you know, she was a, she was a woman. She had she 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 was also recently returned to her motherland, if we mm-hmm. want to call it, or fatherland <laughs> at times, and um, 
she so we were two women from different generation there was this transgenerational idea that i like and you know i i work with a lot within the room mm-hmm. um that um you know dr stefano bolognini you know beautifully writes about this transgenerational idea that shouldn't be forgotten in the room. Mm-hmm. And so I think there was this transgenerational idea. These two women, both recently returned, who were struggling with these ideas of belonging and unbelonging. And, you know, as, you know, as uh, I think Ranjana Kana speaks beautifully about this idea of belonging and unbelonging, you know, psychoanalytically, if we want to look at it, the idea very much in the book is an idea of unbelonging, which is absolutely not the idea of non-belonging. It's different. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it's the idea that we see actually within the Freudian discourse a lot about pleasure, unpleasure, and, 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 you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that the idea, again, if we want to look at it from a Freudian discourse, it's the discourse of regression in a way, you know? When you regress to a place, it's a place you have already been. It's not a new place. Therefore, it's regression. This is the economic theory of libido. You know, you have gone somewhere and then because of certain things, the fixations, you know, certain triggers in the outside world, you make this regression to a place that you have already been. In a sense, you make a regression to your motherland. Mm. You you know you regress to this place and it's and then you have to struggle because it's not a place you don't belong to and it's not a place you belong to and a process of unbelonging which I always you know every time I say unbelonging I want to say unplugging <laughs> because I think I think there's also mm. an unplugging that happens when you do uh, you know through the process of unbelonging so it's a place that it's a familiar territory and again going to the idea of fixation, it's not only familiar, it has an ex, you know, extensive amount of affective energy associated to it. Yeah. So it's not even a normal place that you just go back and visit. It's, you know, it's sort of, you know, I, I can't, you know, this, this has become my professional deformation that I can't help but go back to the words that we have been saying, which is in a sense, you know, one regresses to Paris, or I often regress to Paris, which is a place that I was born there and spent Mm. zero to five there. Oh, I didn't realize. Interesting. Okay, so it's Paris. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so I'm originally from the Soviet Union, which is, which, you know, that's complicated more. Now it does, a country that doesn't no longer exist. So so this regression is, is then, it's also vanishing I think um, this, mm. this place that I used to go back to, uh, that I still go back to, mm-hmm. but it's no longer the same. So, it, yeah. Anyway, but that's we'll leave that. Uh-huh. So, but uh, and Kundera, mm-hmm. you were going to speak about Kundera a little bit and how he functions. You know, a lot of people have asked me, how come Kundera takes so much space? <laughs> and I want to say, uh, staying, uh, you know, staying very true mm-hmm. to this discourse of revealing. Um, and hiding and revealing and hiding because one does both simultaneously, of course, as one speaks. But staying true to this discourse, um, I have to say, I want to say to them, how can he not, if you read the book? Kundera is a symbolic representation of my father. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And, uh, you know, my father was the translator of his works into Farsi. And I read Unbearable Likeness of Being when I was 13. And uh, Kundera becomes so much part of this narrative because his name falls upon my father's name. And, you know, in a sense, would Unbearable Likeness of Being at 13 affect me the way it did if my father wasn't a Farsi translator? Now, this doesn't take away from the fact that I think unbearable lightness of being is the art of an art of the novel at its highest. Mm-hmm. But still, this incredible, irresistible, delicious book would have affected, <laughs> would have taken so much psychic space for me. I'm not sure. So I think, um, I think I didn't have a choice but for Kundera to take so much space within this, uh, within within a put in a book that is autobiographical in a way yeah i mean i uh, so so you do reveal this in the book and i i i was about to say it but i thought i would let you talk about your father and the relationship between kundra and your your father but um mm. you know but i i also read on bear i didn't read it at 13 i i'm a, maybe i'm a little older than you i read it at uh, i don't know I, I was a teenager but older um and it had a big effect on me as well. But again, I'll, I'll leave my personal narrative aside for a second. Yeah. But, but uh, um, what was I going to say about that? Oh, uh, yeah. I was wondering about the novel, though. And I'll ask it a slightly different question because, you know, clearly the very name Kundra is already, um, you know, bears this importance and this symbolic weight because of your father. But um, you do kind of weave in. I mean, there are certain maybe lessons one could say. I mean, did it help? Did were, was unbearable lightness of being somehow? Um, did you keep thinking of it or or thinking about those scenarios when you were practicing in those when you first came back to Tehran? And does it still have a well, bearing I think on very your practice? Much that I, but I think I think again we go back to what you were saying before about belong. I think there is an unbelonged um, anti-hero in Kundera that's my father probably found extremely desirable as I did again, going through this transgenerational idea. Mm -hmm. I think there is an, you know, there is an odyssey. There is Odysseus that I also talk about in the book, taking from Kundera's other book, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, so I think there is a, you know, that I think we share this um, Mm anti-hero unbelonged character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, which 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 maybe goes a little bit also into what you were asking about hospitality, no? Because then yes. the question of hospitality becomes important to such characters, <laughs> and uh, and you know, hospitality, friendship, hospitality. You know, borrowing. It's for me. These signifiers come hand in hand with the different signifiers, which a lot of times is not mentioned with them. But for me, it's, um, it automatically becomes part of the chain of that signifier. And it's <laughs> gratitude. Mm. I, you know, I think that um, Melanie Klein's paper, my, my favorite paper of Melanie Klein is, you know, from envy to gratitude. And this, again, is one of the things that has become particularly highlighted for me living in Iran, because I think there is, um, 
there's something to, you know, I'm working on this. This is one of my projects. But there's something to be said about this being particularly culturally um, highlighted in Iran. But I think when one moves from envy to gratitude, one develops a psychic space for hospitality, for friendship, you know, in this, and and a a sort of, I think, above all, a certain um, intimacy, maybe. Maybe that's the that's the best word for it. But I think when you when one doesn't work through from envy to gratitude, that becomes um, a, a space that never gets opened. And of course, I'm not talking. I, I mean, I hope that I'm clear that this is not a humanitarian approach at all. Mm-hmm. I take a stand against against that. I, you know, it's about. Um, it's about uh, movement. It's about opening up psychic space. It's about, um, at the end, maybe about knowledge. Yeah. I mean, I think I know what you mean. I think I know what this reaction is about to do humanitarianism, but maybe can you just elaborate that a little bit on that? Well, I think Freud was not a humanist. No. And I think I, 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 <laughs> I adhere to that discourse. Mm-hmm. As a Freudian, I adhere to that discourse. I think that you know, um, he says, you know, there is no such thing as uh, any sort of altruistic behavior. You know, mm-hmm. we don't do anything for the other because we're this uh, wonderful um, self-sacrificing thing. We do things because it has some psychic meaning for us. Mm-hmm. We do things because it has psychic function for us. This, of course, doesn't mean that I, you know, that I don't think people can be, uh, you know, for example, uh, develop these capacities for friendship, intimacy, and gratitude. Of course, I believe that. But of course, we do that in the name of something um, higher than humanism. You know, humanism, I think a lot of times, I mean, Maybe I shouldn't say these things so publicly, but, you know, I have a compulsion to confess all the time that gets me in trouble. But I think there's, there's a sadism that gets, um, yeah. uh, it's, it's hidden behind this sort of humanism. Mm-hmm. That's because there's always behind guilt this, that accompanies it God. as well. Yeah. There's absolutely. That's a very. That's exactly. Absolutely. There's guilt. There's your own anxieties. You. You know. This is not happening out of desire to go back to desire. This is happening out of a limitation. Out of a cap. Out of something that you have not developed the capacity for. Right. Yeah, and that's yeah, that's very true. I mean, that's something I. Agree I think with. I think humanism, to use the Lacanian discourse, is right. within the realm of jouissance and not that of desire. Well, thank you for invoking Lacan because I was just about to, but you, because uh, I thought we were we were very much entering that discourse, but um, but it's a mm-hmm. Freudian one. I mean, it's a continuity from what Freud says, and you know, whatever civilization mm-hmm. is discontents, you know, you can just mm-hmm. pick a mm-hmm. text, really. Um, so. I well, we've taken up enough of your time, I think. But I wanted to ask you before before we go uh, about your current projects, actually, and and maybe you can tell us something about geographies of psychoanalysis or something else you're working on, or the Freud group, um, or your writing projects. Well, I have, you know, I, I we have. Uh, I'm the founder and director of the Freudian Group of Tehran that we established eight years ago, and it's a very dear project to me. Mm. 
it's as as anybody who has done any sort of institutionalized work knows that it comes with its own set of um, struggles and <laughs> and uh, it has particularly been uh, difficult um, this year. But I think that we have wonderful, desirous people that are willing to symbolically stand at at its door and protect it. And um, I'm very happy to be part of uh, this, you know, this sort of um, odyssey with them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that it has been part of um, doing a psychoanalysis in Tehran. So that is an ongoing project that I'm very proud of. And I'm, I have the privilege to work with all these people and be part of it. Um, because it's really the members that make the group. And, you know, um, I'm, I'm just uh, one person who had, who had the desire for this. But it's because of their desire that um, it keeps going and it keeps moving. Um, I'm working on my next book, um, and uh, it, it's. Um, I don't talk about the, uh, the book when I'm writing it because it's not conducive for me to continue writing it. But I can give you the title. That <laughs> Wonderful! Is, <laughs> Anything we can get from that you. is. Yes. Yeah. That is a fantasy title. It might not end up being the title, but we had the Geographies of Psychoanalysis conference in October here in Tehran. Oh, okay. Which was, we had wonderful people coming from all over the world, from Argentina, India, uh, Italy, everywhere, Vienna. And um, so Mariano Hornstein, who came here uh, from Argentina, um, we they had just they went to Isfahan for a couple of days and when they were back from Isfahan, very um, you know uh, impressed and you know delighted by Isfahan, I said to him, "Did you see the you know Isfahan is famous for the blue for the color blue mm-hmm. of the city?" And he said, "Yes, it was really breathtaking." And then I started telling him about some of the recent struggles of doing psychoanalysis in Tehran and about this book that I'm working on and I don't have a particular title for. And he said, you, maybe you should call it Persian Blues, <laughs> <laughs> which I really, really like. So that for now is the going title. I haven't had a better idea because I think it plays with the idea right. of blues. It's and, very playful. Um, mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it's very playful, yes. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's, you know, and one always has a lot of different papers that, is, you know, one is working on and, you know, more academic papers. But books I write within the same writing style that the first book has been, you know, and these things. <laughs> Okay. Well, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I guess we should, we should wrap up. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much again for doing this. Uh, I've been talking to Gohar Hamayunpour about her fantastic book, Doing Psychoanalysis in Tehran. And um, thanks. It was a great pleasure. Um, and thanks to our audience for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was really fun. <laughs>